just want to check the sound as we're getting settled. Uh, can the folks in the back hear me okay? Yeah? Okay, great, thanks. Whatever the mind frequently thinks upon and ponders, that will become its inclination. That's the Buddha from the Majjhima Nikaya. We're always practicing something. Now, how do we use our time? How much of our day do we spend kind of thinking about meaningless drivel, <laughs> thinking about ourselves, worrying about the future. When you come to the end of a day, what do you focus on? Do you focus on what went wrong, that one stupid thing you said, the email that got you really upset? In a sea of other moments, what do we choose? What do we pick out? Do we really want to watch that movie again? <laughs> His Holiness the Dalai Lama said, if we were aware that we all contain love within us and that we can foster and develop it, we would certainly give it far more attention than we do. So in a, in a way, that's what we're here to do is to give love far more attention than we usually do. This whole practice is founded on the understanding that transformation is possible. So whether you think about this practice as a certain kind of skill building, the, the cultivation metaphor that Kara referred to, right? We're strengthening certain neural pathways. We're developing a new healthy habit. Or whether you think about it as returning to some kind of innate fundamental quality of the unobstructed heart. The fact is that we can learn to change the channel. We don't have to spend our lives oppressed by the habits of our mind. So instead of kindness, friendliness, and love being a random experience that just arises when the conditions come together, 
we can actually train our hearts to regard life with an attitude of warmth, of friendliness, of goodwill. And we can transform the whole atmosphere of our inner world, which in turn then shifts the basis from which we act in life. Ajahn Sachito, the Thai forest uh, monastic and teacher, he says, metta practice is the whole atmosphere. Metta is the whole atmosphere of your practice. It's what you sit in. What else are you going to sit in? Ill will? So we generally talk about metta in two different ways in this tradition or as having two different purposes. One is the development of concentration. And as a concentration practice, metta unifies the scatteredness, the fragmentation, the distractedness of our minds. And with persistent, continual deep cultivation, it can lead to states of absorption, altered consciousness known as the jhanas. The power of the concentration in metta comes from the wholehearted gathering of our attention behind one phrase at a time. That's all we're doing is practicing one moment, one phrase. That's all we can do. The other purpose of metta practice is that it heals us. It opens the heart. It strengthens the heart. As I was saying last night, it shifts our default story from one of separation, isolation, self-pity, fear, antagonism, to one of connection. It's so easy to view those that we dislike, that we disagree with, as other to demonize one another. This is from Dr. King. I am convinced that people hate each other because they fear each other. They fear each other because they don't know each other. And they don't know each other because they don't communicate with each other. And they don't communicate with each other because they are separated from each other. Speaking during the time, the heights of the height of the civil rights movement working to desegregate the South. How quickly and easily we overlook one another's humanity. So metta creates a bridge across those differences, which is really radical in our world today where there is so much divisiveness and polarization. That doesn't mean that we agree It doesn't mean that we approve of other people's actions. It just means we don't erase their humanity. Because as soon as we create the other, as soon as we lose empathy, we can justify anything. So I want to talk tonight more about metta and some different ways of understanding it and some of the ups and downs of the practice. 
So as we've been sharing this word, metta, uh, gets translated in many different ways, kindness, friendliness, loving kindness. Uh, Christina Feldman uses the phrase unhesitating kindness, which I like. It said that the immediate cause, the nearest moment before the arising of metta is seeing the good in ourself or others. I like using the word love because it challenges me to define and kind of reclaim that word from it being overused and limited to a kind of fetishized, romantic, or sexualized experience. Metta isn't a sentimental quality. It's not, you know, fluffy pink clouds. It also doesn't mean that we're nice to everybody. It doesn't mean that we're a pushover or a doormat or that we don't assert our needs. And being loving sometimes means saying no. Real love includes setting limits, being able to say, no, I'm sorry, I won't bail you out this time. It's also not some kind of grand, lofty quality that's beyond our reach. It's very ordinary, which is one of its strengths, is its accessibility. Again, the Dalai Lama calls it basic human warmth. It's that feeling that arises when you see a good friend unexpectedly. It's like, hey, how are you? It's so good to see you. How have you been? Right? We care. We connect. It's very natural. One of the blessings of having uh, a new small human being in my life um, is that I get to see the goodness in people whenever I'm with him. It's so remarkable. I, I take a walk in the morning often. I'll eat breakfast. Sometimes I'll feed him, depending on when he's woken up, if he's hungry yet or not. And then um, I'll put him in the backpack carry, in the front carry, and we'll take a walk up the hill where we live and then come down the hill. And um, the other day I was, I was doing our walk in the evening. It was just a different schedule. And I was walking down the hill and there's this little traffic circle on the way back to our house. Uh, and there's a pub right, right there on the traffic circle. Um, and there are these two men sitting outside in front of the pub drinking beers. And, you know, walking along with our baby in, in front of me. And the two of them just light up. As their eyes were beaming and smiling and, you know, waving at him. It's right there, the goodness. My, uh, my wife's mother, we went traveling together as a, as a family and um, were similarly remarking on all of the experiences we had because we had a baby with us and the many people that we met. And she had this really astute observation. She said, Babies are ambassadors. Just consider for a moment what our lives would be like without kindness. And maybe you've been through some periods where it's really felt that way. How bleak. 
the regions between kindness can be. This is from Mother Teresa from a book of her teachings called In the Heart of the World. She said, there is much suffering in the world, very much. There's material suffering. There's suffering from hunger. There's suffering from homelessness, from all kinds of disease. But still, I think that the greatest suffering is being lonely, feeling unloved, just having no one. I have come more and more to realize that it is being unwanted that is the worst disease that any human being can ever experience. We need love. When we're infants, we will actually die without love. It's called failure to thrive. And it's tragic that it's actually a phenomenon we've been able to document. But as adults, we still need love too. We still experience a certain kind of damage, injury from lack of love. It just shows up in different ways. So metta helps us to remember the love that connects us the love that brought us into this world. And regardless of where we come from or what our background is, we each had at least a few months inside a womb where we were nourished and loved by a body. That's how we get here. And so metta practice is rooted in the truth that our lives are connected we're not as separate as we seem. And as we practice, the more we sense our own longing to love and be loved, the more we start to see it in others. The more we feel a sense of tenderness and kinship with our fellow humans and fellow creatures on the planet, we start to experience more a sense of belonging in the human family and the family of life. This is how um, one of my favorite preachers put it. Deep within us, no matter who we are, there lives a feeling of wanting to be lovable, of wanting to be the kind of person that others like to be with. And the greatest thing we can do is to let people know that they are loved and capable of loving. Love isn't a state of perfect caring. It's an active noun, like struggle. To love someone is to strive to accept that person exactly the way they are, right here and now. It's from Fred Rogers. It takes courage to feel, to love. I'm 46. Um, I was 45 when our son was born. About a year and a half before that, my wife came to me and said, I think I want to have, have a baby. So that's different. 
been together eight years. We met, we talked about it and we were both like, yeah, I guess if the other person really wanted to, I, I you know, I could be swayed, but I'm not, not top of my priority list. So, you know, the default was, well, probably not. I took some time to think about it. <laughs> Big decision. <clears throat> and I sat with it. And I felt afraid. I felt afraid about bringing, um, bringing another human into the world today, with everything that's happening. And I felt afraid of the pain. I felt afraid of the grief and the loss that comes with loving in a world of change. And I said, yes. I said, I'm here to learn. So let's try. We both feel incredibly fortunate and blessed that the conditions came together to actually receive another life into our family. So I think it takes a lot to, to be here, to be willing to touch into the heart and even just see what's here, all of the things we live through. Be willing to slow down. Some people never do it. They spend their whole lives running, avoiding, burying it. So just even this willingness to turn towards the heart and listen and see what's here. It's tremendous, I think. And they're gifts as we do that. We start to remember how to let ourselves be touched by life. How to receive, how to receive the nourishment of a meal that's been cooked for us. How to receive the beauty of the earth, of the land, of the wind. how to receive the song of the crickets and really let it in. Metta practice isn't so much something that we do. It's like we're allowing the heart to remember how to love, which means in turn letting ourselves be loved ourselves be seen, be received, be included. You know, you don't show up to a sitting, be, that's fine. There's no, no shame or guilt here, but your presence is missed. The person sitting next to you, they're like, oh, where are they? Hope they're okay. We might think that nobody notices. doesn't matter. It's not true. We're connected. We're doing this together. It's okay if you miss a sitting. <laughs> this question came up earlier about, you know, what is it to be happy? What am I actually wishing for people? This is part of the invitation of the practice. 
is to really understand the meaning of these phrases. What does it mean to be happy? What does it mean to wish someone, may you be happy? Is it just about feeling good? Is it about getting what we want? Or is there something deeper? You know, How are we when the fabulous meal ends? When the weather's awful, when you don't get the gig? Are, are we able to touch into a deeper kind of happiness? that doesn't come from just getting what we want, but that comes from living well, from having integrity, from developing resources and having the confidence that I can meet life on its own terms. One of my favorite phrases, uh, one of the long metta retreats I did, that very question came up for me as I was saying, may you be happy, and I was like, just doesn't feel right. It's like, what is that? Happy. And so the phrase for me that came was, may you be deeply happy. Like truly, you know, is another way of holding it. In addition to the kind of the beautiful sort of open space Yang created this afternoon of like, yeah, however it arises, isn't that a gift? Any form of happiness Young was also talking about the protection of metta. So what does it mean to be safe? And the Buddha said in, in the, the story that Young was telling this afternoon, the origins of metta, that the Buddha said, this is the only protection you'll ever need. What does that actually mean? You know, sometimes we think about protection and we think of like a shield or somehow cutting ourselves off. The protection of metta is much more powerful. It's much more flexible. It protects us, the traditional phrase, from inner and outer harm. The famous story about um, the Dalai Lama's uh, physician, I think it was, who was tortured uh, by the Chinese after the invasion of Tibet. He finally was released or escaped and was meeting with the Dalai Lama. And uh, the Dalai Lama asked him, you know, were you ever afraid? And he said, only once when I noticed my mind was losing compassion for my captors. This is possible. It's a high, high bar. <laughs> but usually we project harm outwards. What does it mean to not harm ourselves, to protect our own hearts from the forces of hatred, animosity, and ill will? The classical definition of metta is the absence of hatred. I can't remember which teacher it was that was saying this the other night. Non-hatred, non-ill will. That's a much lower bar, <laughs> right? Just, just don't hate. Don't hate on yourself. Don't hate on others. And as we practice, we, we see what's not metta. Kara referred to this this morning, this kind of sense that this is a purification practice. Metta reveals what's not metta. I like to think about it as tuning an instrument. 
So you might be playing a guitar or something and it sounds fine until you get a tuning fork and you're like, oh, it's flat, right? Or it's sharp. Just when you're, when you're only referencing yourself, it's like everything seems fine. But as soon as you get that one moment of metta, all of a sudden you start noticing the places where I want something back or where I'm irritated or where I'm like, may you be happy so you stop bugging me. (laughs) Wait, that's not metta. it, It kind of shines a light on the places where our hearts are not resting in this kind of the very open, beautiful, untarnished wish for ourselves and others to be happy. And we start to see the opposite. We see what happens when there's something unpleasant, a sensation in our body, a mental habit or pattern, the sound of something in the hall that we don't think should be there or that we don't like. And what happens? The mind wants to destroy it. We want to banish it or we want to separate ourselves from it. We see the conditioning of the mind to lash out in anger or to recoil in fear, to try to separate ourselves from the object that we don't like. And metta is the very opposite energetic movement. Rather than separating from things, it's about connecting, coming into relationship. One of the chants from the um, Theravada tradition, the way of the elders, that Joshua referred to on metta and the Brahma Viharas goes, I will abide pervading the all-encompassing world with a heart imbued with loving kindness. Abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility and without ill will. What would it be like to live without hostility or ill will towards oneself or others? And we project it outwards, don't we? They don't like me. I don't belong here. She hates me. What did I do to get them so angry? We create stories in our own mind, projecting ill will onto others. In one moment, a very ordinary, simple kindness. Are any of these present? Ill will, animosity, hostility? No. You hold the door for someone or they hold the door for you and you make eye contact for a second and smile. In that moment, there's no ill will. There's no animosity. What a joy to be free from enmity. So we encounter the opposite, the irritation, the hatred, the annoyance, the fear, the worry. And then we encounter what Carr referred to this morning, the near miss, the decoy. It seems like metta, but it's actually a different state. And that's what gets translated as, as 
love with attachment. And this is a tricky word, tricky translation, because in psychology, we talk about healthy attachment, psychological bonding, emotional connectedness. It's not what we mean. The word in Pali is upadana, which means something like control, trying to control others. Right? It's that I'll love you if. I'm okay if you're okay. Giving to get. It's this kind of enmeshed, entangled situation. And there's often real love there too. But it gets complicated. It gets tinged with this other energy of grasping, of needing something back. And it's complicated. Yeah, relationships are complicated. We have needs. We want them to be met. Yeah, and sometimes they are, and sometimes they're not. And can our love not be contingent on that, right? So one of the things that's, that can be the hardest to really uh, learn to trust in the practice is that it's an organic process that, that changes and flows. It's not just this kind of if you're doing it right, you get more and more loving and more and more open as the week goes on. It's, uh, it's more like a labyrinth, right? Like you think you're right there at the center and then the next thing you know, you're all the way out at the edge. <laughs> and then you're like turning around and you're like, where am I? What happened? Why am I going this way? Uh, some of us were talking in one of the small groups this morning about... Um, feeling the heart open and the beauty of that. And then um, the, the way it, it contracts and protection. I'm trying to remember the word the person was using. It was such a great description of the process and it's escaping me now, but just the, the constriction, the defense, how we pull in armor shut down and how painful that can be, particularly if we start to feel a certain little connection or the heart opening or kind of more vulnerable. Everything opens and closes. Everything changes and goes through cycles, the day and the night, the seasons, our breath, we breathe in, we breathe out, right? What happens if you try to just breathe in? (laughs) can't do it or you pass out eventually but But what would it be like to let your heart open and then to let it close and to trust that that's okay it's part of the process it's not a problem you didn't do it it's just learning it's just feeling and the more you allow your heart to retract to close to try to protect itself guess what the more it starts to trust you Oh, they're listening. Great. (laughs) I can actually take a break. And then it will open again more readily, more fully. And then it will close again. And just like that, the practice unfolds. Sometimes the hardest one to love is ourselves. The Buddha said, you can search the whole universe and you won't find anyone more deserving or worthy of your love than you paraphrasing a little bit, more or less. It 
So we might need to learn or remember how to be kind to ourselves, sometimes by allowing others or seeing others be kind to us. We shared that story last night about, you know, the kind of in the self-critic I noticed on the retreat and the walking meditation and sort of the, all the grief that I felt. So um, a few months prior to that, I was, uh, it was a longer, I think it was like a whole year or more prior to that. I was in Japan um, practicing, studying, and uh, I was on a seshin, Soto Zen intensive retreat. And uh, one of my yogi jobs was taking care of the altar. And there was this very beautiful, ornate, um, wooden sandalwood statue of Manjushri, the Bodhisattva of wisdom, riding on a lion. And um, we had these these very big um, candles, you know, like this round, tall candles that we would burn uh, into the night and sit sit until like 10 or something, 10.30, and then wake up at 3 or 3.30 in the morning. It was very intensive. And um, the teacher running the retreat um, had instructed me in the Zen tradition, you're not supposed to blow out the candles with your um, with your breath. You take your hand and you cup it, and you do this very kind of quick motion and create just a little puff of air with your hand to blow out the candle. It's fairly difficult to do, especially with a really big candle. So this one night, you know, I'm, I'm there and, you know, it's 1030. I'm exhausted. I want to go to bed. <laughs> candle. And, you know, I was impatient and I, I hit the candle and this wax, you know, everywhere, statue, on the floor. I was like, Oh my God, what did I do? So I, I went to find the teacher and um, we called him Hojo-san, which was his, his kind of title, his role. I went to him and I said, Hojo-san, I'm so sorry. I was trying to blow out the candle and I knocked it over and the wax went everywhere. And he didn't even take a beat. He just, total steady gaze, just like, oh, that's okay. We all make mistakes sometimes. Come, I'll show you how to clean it. It was so healing to just be met with kindness. There wasn't even a flicker of reactivity or judgment. This is from the artist and painter Georgia O'Keeffe. It's one of my favorite quotes. It's not about practice, but that is about practice. She said, still, in a way, nobody sees a flower, really. It's so small. We haven't time. And to see takes time. Like to have a friend takes time. We're learning to be a good friend to ourselves here and in turn to others and to life. And what's it like if you've had the blessing of being with a good friend? 
How are you when you're with a friend? We take our time. We listen with, with interest, with patience, with kindness. We relax, we enjoy their presence. We give them space to share what's happening. Can we receive ourselves that way? Can we receive our experience that way? So why are these qualities called Brahma Viharas? The word Brahma means divine or heavenly. Vihara is a, is a, a monastery or a home, a resting place, an abode. It's where you stay. So why are these places that we stay that are heavenly or divine? They're described as uh, measureless, boundless, immeasurable. Part of the strength of metta and the other Brahma-viharas, is this potential for them being unconditional, no strings attached that we've referred to. It means that our worthiness of love isn't based on being good enough, on being beautiful, on our status, on performing well or achieving something. We don't have to measure up. We're not picking and choosing or comparing just by virtue of being alive, just by virtue of being here. Every creature has dignity, is worthy of love and respect. The analogy, one of the analogies that's used in the early texts is metta is compared to a gentle rain that falls across the land and it falls everywhere. It doesn't pick and choose. Gentle, so it just, it soaks in slowly. It's a remarkable quality when you encounter it in someone, this kind of unconditional warmth. It's very down to earth. Maybe you've met somebody who's like this. They treat everyone with kindness and respect and presence. They're they're immeasurable, they're boundless because they don't choose. They're also immeasurable in their benefit. It's like water in a desert when we're thirsty. One moment of kindness can nourish us for a long, long time. We know um, from research on childhood trauma and uh, adverse childhood experiences that having one relationship with a caring adult is protective against trauma, Um, has all kinds of positive outcomes for health, mental health, resilience. The benefit, the effect of kindness is immeasurable. Can't quantify it. And this, this kind of impartial kindness on the personal level that we've been talking about, on the social level, on the collective level, is revolutionary. Metta is the heart of nonviolence. 
one of the powers of a, a principled nonviolence approach to social change is dissolving the idea or the image of an enemy. Again, from Dr. King, love is the most durable power in the world. It is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. The heart of nonviolence doesn't see enemies. It only sees fellow humans who might one day join us in the struggle and sit at the table of beloved community. Anne Braden, the uh, white civil rights activist and anti-racist educator, uh, one of her pithy quotes is, you can't organize people you hate. And what do we see in social movements? Divisiveness, cancel culture, us-them mentalities. I have a, a, a book coming out uh, later this year, and I partnered with a friend and colleague of mine who's a nonviolence scholar to learn about examples from history where these beautiful qualities we cultivate on the spiritual path played a role in social change. And one of the stories that I learned from him uh, was a story about Gandhi uh, when he was campaigning f uh, in South Africa. And uh, he canceled a, a mass movement for civil disobedience at the very last minute when he learned that the railroad workers in the town were also going to strike because he felt compassion and kindness towards his chief political opponent, this general Jan Smuts, who was the uh, police chief at the time. He wanted to spare him and the police force from being overwhelmed with too many people on strike demonstrating at once. And this is what um, the, the general's secretary wrote about that, that choice, that decision to, uh, to not go through with the civil disobedience. She wrote, you help us in our days of need. How can we lay hands upon you? I often wish you Indians in parentheses took to violence like the English strikers. Then we would know at once how to dispose of you, but you will not injure even your enemy. You desire victory by self-suffering alone and never transgress your self-imposed limit of courtesy and chivalry. And that is what reduces us to sheer helplessness. Gotha said, treat people as if they were what they ought to be and you help them become what they are capable of being. I think we all know this somewhere deep in our hearts because we're connected, because we know that that hatred and violence hurt, that the only way out is actually through love. And so we have this amazing opportunity 
to give ourselves to the practice, to let our hearts remember where they came from. And it's not easy. And that's okay. Most worthwhile things in life are not. But what we stand to recover is priceless. I want to close with uh, one of my favorite stories about the power of simple kindness. So this is a story about a taxi driver in New York City. Some of you may have heard this story. A uh, person's name was Kent Nurburn. I might start crying. <laughs> See if I get through it. I arrived at the address and honked the horn. After waiting a few minutes, I honked again. I thought about driving away, but instead I put the car in park, walked up to the door and knocked. Just a minute, answered a frail elderly voice. I could hear something being dragged across the floor. After a long pause, the door opened. Small woman in her 90s stood before me. She was wearing a print dress and a pillbox hat with a veil pinned on it like somebody out of a 1940s movie. By her side was a small nylon suitcase. The apartment looked as if no one had lived in it for years. All the furniture was covered with sheets. There were no clocks on the walls, no knickknacks or utensils on the counters. In the corner was a cardboard box filled with photos and glassware. Would you carry my bag out to the car, she said. I took the suitcase to the cab and then returned to assist the woman. She took my arm and we walked slowly toward the curb. She kept thanking me for my kindness. It's nothing, I told her. I just try to treat my passengers the way I would want my mother to be treated. Oh, you're such a good boy, she said. When we got in the cab, she gave me an address and then asked, could you drive through downtown? It's not the shortest way, I answered quickly. Oh, I don't mind, she said. I'm in no hurry. I'm on my way to hospice. I looked in the rearview mirror. Her eyes were glistening. I don't have any family left, she continued in a soft voice. The doctor says I don't have very long. I quietly reached over and shut off the meter. What route would you like me to take, I asked. For the next two hours, we drove through the city. She showed me the building where she had once worked as an elevator operator. We drove through the neighborhood where she and her husband had lived when they were newlyweds. 
She had me pull up in front of a furniture warehouse that had once been a ballroom where she'd gone dancing as a girl. Sometimes she'd ask me to slow in front of a particular building or corner and would sit, staring into the darkness, saying nothing. At the first hint of sun, as the first hint of sun was cresting the horizon, she suddenly said, I'm tired, let's go now. We drove in silence to the address she had given me. It was a low building, like a small convalescent home, and two orderlies came out to the cab as soon as we pulled up. I opened the trunk and took the small suitcase to the door. How much do I owe you, she asked, reaching into her purse. Nothing, I said. You have to make a living, she answered. There are other passengers, I responded. <laughs> Almost without thinking, I bent and gave her a hug. She held on to me tightly. You gave an old woman a little moment of joy, she said. Thank you. I squeezed her hand and then walked into the dim morning light. Behind me, a door shut. It was the sound of the closing of a life. I didn't pick up any more passengers that shift. I drove aimlessly, lost in thought. For the rest of the day, I could hardly talk. What if that woman had gotten an angry driver or one who was impatient to end his shift? What if I had refused to take the, the run or had honked once and driven away? On quick review, I don't think that I have done anything more important in my life. So let's just sit quietly for a moment. Thank you so much for your kind attention. So we have a little bit of time for some walking practice. <clears throat> and then we'll come back uh, together for some beautiful chanting. Again, there'll be an option to leave early if you need, uh, need some extra rest. So hope to see you there. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.